Welcome to our study of 1 Thessalonians. Today we begin with chapter 2 here on the Radio Bible Course, and we thank you for tuning in. As we begin chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, let's consider what happened to this northern Greek city. Perhaps an analogy would be of help to us so that we can better appreciate the tremendous impact of the gospel on that pagan culture back in the first century. Imagine, if you will, a city in the United States today where there is religion but no Bible-believing or Bible-teaching church and no real Christians, I mean by that, no believers in Christ for salvation. Supposing a few of us would go there and get jobs, any kind of jobs, in restaurants, service stations, cashiers, and so forth, and we begin teaching in the city's religious centers. We prove that Jesus is the promised Christ of the Old Testament prophets. We would preach salvation by grace through faith to the exclusion of all that their religion taught them. And we teach about Christ's return for those who believe in him. The result might be that some believe, convinced that the gospel comes from God, and they follow us. They have accepted Christ as the Savior because the Bible reveals that, along with the way of faith alone for salvation. Then they begin to walk into an entirely new way of life, and in the process of following the Word of God, they turn from dependence on their rituals and human ideas about God, abandoning these completely for the new way of the Bible. This angers the religious leaders who are losing people to this exclusive faith way of life, and hostility toward our preaching becomes threatening. About a month later, the few dozen believers who are concerned for our safety urge us to leave the city, and we escape at night for still another such city. And as we reflect on the people we left, we realize something remarkable had happened. A month earlier, there was not a single believer and no gospel. Now, a group of believers is functioning there and elsewhere, preaching the message of Christ as the Savior from God. Paul, Timothy, and Titus had done just what I have described. They went to the synagogue. They preached to others in homes. And the result was a group of believers and the formation of a church but not only a church, a vibrant, evangelizing church. Now, chapter 2 is before us, and it explains some of the reasons for Thessalonian church success. First of all, let's read the text, beginning with verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our visit to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the face of great opposition. For our appeal does not spring from error or uncleanness, nor is it made with guile, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never used either words of flattery, as you know, or a cloak for greed, 
as God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, whether from you or from others, though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. This section might be entitled, The Purity of the Messenger's Motives. And it opens with an understatement when Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our visit to you was not in vain. The word vain refers to emptiness or lacking in purpose or sincerity. On the contrary, Paul had a real purpose when he went to Thessalonica to preach boldly, regardless of opposition. There was a message from God which he had to proclaim. Christ was alive the Christ who met him on the road to Damascus and changed him completely so that he became a servant of this living Christ must be preached. That was Paul's burden. Did Paul succeed? He did. And in view of the society which he encountered there, this is truly remarkable. Listen to this description of first century culture in Greece. Quote, there has never been such a variety of religious cults and philosophic systems as in Paul's day. East and West had intermingled and united to produce an amalgam of real piety, high moral principles, crude superstition, and gross license. Oriental mysteries, Greek philosophy, and local godlings competed for favor under the tolerant aegis of Roman indifference. Holy men of all creeds and countries, popular philosophers, magicians, astrologers, crackpots and cranks, the sincere and the spurious, the righteous and the rogue, swindlers and saints, jostled and clamored for the attention of the credulous and the skeptical. We get that from Neil's commentary and it's a good description of that first century. So Paul came to a city that was buzzing with religion and human ideas, and he came with a message about only one Savior, and without that one, men would be lost forever. He came as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Now he tells us in verse 2, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the face of great opposition. He refers back to the time at Philippi where he was not only beaten, but jailed. He and Silas, they were in stocks. God used an earthquake to bring the gospel to the attention of the jailer and others who were in that prison. The result was the salvation of the jailer, for he ran into that prison, damaged by the earthquake, and found Paul and Silas still there, not having escaped. And he said, Men, what must I do to be saved? And they answered, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, and all your household. And so the jailer took them to his house, and he was baptized, he and his household, at night, at midnight. In his household? Did he have a pool there? Well, he didn't need a pool to be baptized. That's an idea that people have today, that you need much water. But that wasn't the case when people were baptized in all instances in the first century. And so 
the jailer and his whole family believed in Jesus Christ. Then the magistrates asked Paul and Silas to leave, for they feared that they had imprisoned these Roman citizens and that they might have to pay a high price for it. Well, Paul said he came here to Thessalonica and preached the gospel of God. That's interesting, the gospel of God. Yes, its source is God. God and Christ are one. They are two persons in the Godhead. There is also the Spirit who works together with the Father and the Son. So it's all right to call it the gospel of God. You can call it the gospel of good news, the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all one and the same thing. Its source is God. Paul didn't preach, help us to build the kingdom. It was not the Jewish kingdom gospel, which the apostles, John the Baptist, and Jesus preached during his life on earth. The gospel which Paul preached was not a call to reform, to help the poor, to influence the government, to eliminate slavery, or to enhance women's rights. It was a revelation that without faith it is impossible to please God, and with faith God is completely pleased and satisfied. So much, in fact, that he declares a person righteous in his sight forever and he makes him his child, forgiving him his sin and giving him eternal life, along with the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is given to live in each believer as a guarantee of God's promise. That's the gospel which Paul preached. Now, we don't hear much of this gospel in our prominent religious centers today. That's a major reason for the multiplication of new churches, for radio and television programs and specialized ministries. I have noted with interest, looking at the kind of ministries men go into when they graduate from seminaries, not many of them go into church work. They have given up on the church. They want to do something for Christ because they have found the church in many cases too dead to work with. Now, it's not wrong that many churches have started up, new churches, that is. It's good that they have, because what has happened is many people who were believers in the dead churches decided they wanted something better, and they formed a group, they organized, and they called a young pastor to come to lead them and to teach them. That's good, because now the gospel goes forth in the community where before it was not. So we should not think of the multiplication of many small churches as a bad thing. It's the best thing that could happen, and it will continue to happen as long as churches die. They die when they depart from the word of life. They have no life-giving message, and there is no regeneration in them. They don't talk about people having come into salvation. They know nothing about being forgiven of your sins and knowing it. And in those churches you find very little joy in Christ. As a matter of fact, people find it very awkward to be around someone who talks about Jesus Christ. That's what's happened in many of our churches. 
Now, Paul could say in verse 3 that his appeal did not spring from error. That's the word in the Greek for deceit. Listen to how he writes this. For our appeal does not spring from error or uncleanness, nor is it made with guile. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God, who tests our hearts. Why would Paul even refer to the fact that his appeal to these Thessalonians did not spring from error or deceit? Now, why would Paul say that? He appears to be reacting to an accusation that he did come with a deceitful purpose. And who would have done that? Well, the Jews might have done it. They might have said, Paul misinterprets the prophecies about the Messiah. He neglects the law of Moses. He doesn't teach people that they need to be circumcised. He has an easy gospel, one requiring nothing from man, only faith. Well, that's exactly what Paul preached. Only faith in Christ alone. That was the good news. And if he added anything else, it wouldn't be good news. It would be warmed over Judaism. Judaism saved nobody. I'll have more to say about that in our broadcast tomorrow. I hope you'll join me here. If you have not received a copy of one of our free booklets entitled Heaven's Password, please write today. Heaven's Password is free. Until tomorrow, this is Nick Calavota reminding you that the word gospel means good news. Our address is Radio Bible Courses, Post Office Box 14916, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 70898. The website is rbcword.org.